This is an RNZ podcast. When COVID-19 hit back in March and the country went into lockdown for weeks, the local media industry saw its income dry up almost immediately. Media companies big and small, which were already having a hard time financially, were wondering whether they would survive the crisis at all. Well, six months on, they have... With one exception, the country's preeminent magazine publisher, Bauer Media, which shut down in early April. But the other ones all cut costs to survive, and hundreds of journalists lost their jobs. But for years, newsrooms around the country have been shrinking, and their journalists have been doing more with less. So, for those that remain in work, a hard job is getting even harder, as Hayden Donnell now reports. The story of the decline of the media industry has been written hundreds of times. By now, most of the main beats are familiar. Classified ads collapse first, lost to sites like TradeMe in New Zealand or Craigslist overseas. Advertising revenue followed, siphoned off by the big tech firms, Facebook and Google. Print subscriptions fell and viewer numbers declined for TV as content was pumped out for free on the internet. The stories on that gradual collapse often focus on its economic aspects. The constant cost-cutting, the takeover bids by private equity companies... Last week, former Metro magazine journalist Tess Nickel wrote a feature which was a little different. It was for Essential Services Zine, an online publication set up by one of her colleagues at Bauer after the company shut down. The story highlights how those economic conditions have affected the actual job of journalism. She describes the difficulties reporters face keeping up with the internet's unceasing 24-7 news cycle in increasingly low-paid and understaffed newsrooms. That combination of declining funding and rising workload has consequences, not just on the nature of reporting, but on who sticks around in the job. This is a passage from Nichols' article. Many people leave taking their talent and their promise with them. This matters not because we should want every aspiring journalist to be able to fulfil their dreams, although that would be nice, but because too many chances to create good work and good journalists are wasted, and the overall quality and breadth of journalism suffers. Nicol isn't the only one making this point. It's been echoed by commentators overseas, including Alexandria Neeson of the Columbia Journalism Review. She speaks here about the relentlessness of her journalism job, which led to her suffering burnout. Generally speaking, I think most of us are on Twitter constantly. Most of us are refreshing websites, are uh, checking you know, those breaking news alerts that sometimes are just coming back to back. Um, and, and that's what you know, leaves us at the end of the day feeling like, how can we possibly get up tomorrow and do this all over again? Um, You do have to make a choice sometimes. Um, I mean, this happens to me all the time. I go in to to a room to take a call and I come out and there's this commotion and I'm just like, well, what happened? (laughs) And at that point, something else is already happening. And so I'm already playing catch up. You're in this sort of constant state of catching up and you never, you never really feel like, okay, I'm on steady ground and I know what the news of the day is because it's, so constantly changing. That applies here too. One senior New Zealand journalist who's worked for several major media companies recently told me her job was impossible. She had also received counselling for burnout. Nicol says that's a common story and one that poses a real threat to the job of journalism and ultimately to the quality of our news. In her eyes, fixing the problem might mean changing the way journalism is practised and perhaps just doing less of it. She talked to me earlier this week. Kia ora, Tess Nicol, and welcome to Media Watch. Hello, thank you for having me. Your article for Essential Services begins with you being made redundant. Mm-hmm. Bummer. Uh, yeah, can you describe how that happened? Just set the scene. 
I think we were like a couple of days into lockdown, but we were a week into working from home. And I woke up and I had a text from the company saying that all staff needed to be on a Zoom call at, I think, like 8.30 that morning, turn your mic off, turn your video off, you know, urgent meeting. And for some reason, it didn't occur to me that what might be happening is that we were all losing our jobs. I just thought it was something COVID-related. So I got up, I was still in my pyjamas, and got on the call and it was the the head of Bauer New Zealand and Australia and yeah he basically sort of had a bit of a preamble and then said you know as effective immediately we're shutting down I didn't actually click until he said that and I was just like oh my god I can't believe this is happening even though on another level I sort of was like "Mm, makes sense that this is happening (laughs) yeah so you being told that news in your pajamas it was shocking but in your article you actually say it provided a moment of clarity and almost, it seems like, relief. I don't know if it was relief. The way that I describe it in the article is I realised how heavy the prospect had been hanging on me and I think that that's the best way to describe it. And I just sort of realised what a kind of psychological burden it is to always be thinking about the fact that your job is not really secure. And once I'd actually you know, lost my job, I thought, well, maybe I don't want to work in an industry where I'm always kind of know that that's a possibility. And I remember saying, you know, we had a little Metro team call after the big Bauer call. And I remember saying to my, to my workmates, I was just like, I just don't know if I can do this again. Do you think that's a common experience for people in journalism? Yes, I think so. And I think that it's really the feeling that your job is not secure and you could lose it, so you better prove that you're worth keeping is something that's really drilled into the minds of every junior and mid-level reporter. But it's not just this threat of redundancy, is it, for journalists? Because a lot of these articles about the collapse of journalism, they focus on the collapse of stuff like the advertising model and classified ads, but your article is kind of different and good in this way because it talks about what it's like, what that looks like in a day-to-day level for journalists. Yeah, I obviously can't compare it to what it was like before it started collapsing because that's been my whole career. But what it feels like on a day-to-day level is just, it's just so completely woven into the fabric of what you're doing, you know, like There's never any money, there's never enough time, there's never enough people to do everything. Everything always needs to be done, you know, five minutes ago. And I think that it's informed by, you know, I wrote in the piece that when you have that, you're either trying to fill the paper, which is a concrete physical thing, which has a certain amount of space, or you're trying to fill 24 hours of radio or TV content. There are parameters of time around how much work you can produce. Whereas online, there are no parameters because the space of online is endless. Sometimes I feel like I use the phrase often, you know, shoveling content into the void. Yeah. Because you could literally have endless numbers of stories online. And because the news is so fast-paced, there's perhaps not a moment, enough moments where people who are deciding what news should get made sit down and think, well, do we actually need this or not? Yeah. Was there a time when journalism had more money and could actually pay more people to do that work? Oh, definitely. Um, Both my parents are journalists and they both remember working in conditions like that. And I remember when I first started my job at the Herald and hearing from some of the older journalists that 
it was not uncommon to knock off at one and go to the pub because you'd filed all your stories for the paper that day. And I, it's just, you know, I, when I also when I started, I had um, a really lovely investigative reporter, super senior, show me around. He was going to kind of going to be my mentor, and he was showing me around on one of my first days. And giving me tips and tricks and things. And he, like, took me to the library and showed me how to use the microfiche. And it's like, that was really well-intentioned. But also, when would I ever have the time to go to the library and look at microfiche? You know, I used to eat All these things in the journalism movies, right? That just doesn't happen (laughs) anymore. You're looking at Twitter and then you're writing on something that's happening. Totally, totally. It's just a completely different environment. I mean, I ate lunch at my desk every day for like four years, you know? (laughs) And that's just normal. And this is not just a sob story for young reporters, you know? It's not just people going, oh, no, the industry. Because this is what, in your thesis, this is an existential threat for journalism, really. Totally, totally. I mean, like, yeah, when I say, like, oh, I ate lunch at my desk every day for four years, that's not so that people go, like, oh, that's so sad for you. You know, like, I'm a white middle-class woman. I can get a job. Like, I have got a job now. I'm fine. The point is that when you have all these people trying to make their way in an industry where they're very, very stressed and kind of caught in, like, a bit of a churn, burnout is really common and just leaving is really common. I mean, in journalism, going into comms or PR is called going, you know, everyone going jokes, going side. to the dark side. But, you know, lots of young reporters do that because they work in a newsroom for maybe a year, sometimes less. They just, they're working shifts, they're tired, they're feeling burnt out, they're not making any money, and they don't see where they can go from there. And so they leave and they go and they work in comms where it's more relaxed, where they make more money, where they can have kind of better quality of life outside their job. And, you know, I saw that happen with people who came in kind of around the same time that I started and after I started. And it was just such a shame because they were actually, they were much better reporters than me. You know, some of them had amazing instincts. They were so good at getting people to talk to them. They got great stories. And then they just got completely anxious and burnt out and they left. And it's the point of why all of this matters is because these are people who had great potential to write really good journalism, which benefits the public and the re- our readers and what information is out there to help shape the national conversation on various topics, and they're not there anymore. So the, the other thing is that this actually skews journalism towards people who can kind of take these punishing conditions. Is journalism also now only taking a particular type of person? So you kind of do have to, like, learn to change some parts of maybe your natural personality to do your job well, and I think that that's normal and fine. But I think that those more kind of high-conflict interactions when you're chasing breaking news, trying to talk to people who might have had a family member die, you know, that's really, really difficult. And when you can't see any way where you could graduate into another kind of role... You just kind of... You you feel that stretching out before you as an endless yeah, prospect. Yeah, and you just think, like, I just don't know if I can do this forever. And mm. some people are better at adapting to that than others, and and that's fine and normal and, and, and good, but the point is, like, you need lots of different kinds of people, not just, you know, talking about gender and race and class, but dispositionally. You need lots of different kinds of thinkers in a newsroom. And when there are less diverse senior roles to have, you know, in terms of talking about feature writing or, like, 
you know, lifestyle, things like that. You're not going to keep different kinds of people in the in the job. You think that if journalism needs to recover, then the job needs to be fulfilling again. Yeah, and I think that you're seeing, like, it's probably too soon to say this with any kind of sureness, but it is interesting to me to see that so many magazines are coming back so quickly, and I think that this is possibly a reflection of, you know, you don't know what you've got until it's gone, and possibly a realisation that it's worth having these different kinds of media, you know, long-form, slower media around, because they're a vital part of the whole media ecosystem. The question of how you get money is one that I, I don't know the answer to, and I guess nobody does, otherwise they would have you know done it by now. But I think one thing that you can control if you can't control how much money you're making is you can control how much you're producing. So mm. do you think that the future of journalism is essentially, in some cases, doing less journalism? Yeah, I think that it has to be. You know, until somebody comes up with a new workable business model, one thing you don't have as much control over as you'd like is how much money you're earning. But what you do have control over is how much content and what kind of, con- you know, what kind of stories you can produce. And I think that if you disentangle more of your reporters from this kind of endless churn of, you know, putting out content for the website, you will, you do, I mean, it just makes sense, right? You will free them up to do stories that they will find more personally and professionally satisfying and that readers will probably find more valuable to read. Thank you so much for joining me, Tess Nicholl. Thank you.